All right, so um, my, my, my thinking on this, I've actually been thinking on this for a while, honestly. It's kind of inspired by um, Luther's Table Talks. I don't know if you all are familiar with that. You probably know the magazine, right? But do you know where that, the title comes from for the magazine, Table Talk? Um, uh, Luther, Martin Luther, um, him and his wife, Catherine, uh, were very hospitable people, and they regularly would invite university students over to, uh, to their home. And, uh, and travelers, people that were just passing through town, if you ran into a stranger, they would invite them over. And uh, almost nightly, they would gather around the dinner table and just uh, talk theology. And they would pepper Luther with all kinds of questions. Um, and over time, many of his students actually wrote down a lot of his uh, um, answers. And then later, after his death, one of his students compiled a lot of his um, answers and, and things that he said. And they put them together in what they called Luther's Table Talks. And uh, so anyways, that's where the magazine title comes from. Um, and I thought it'd be good just to kind of talk about um, just significant uh, theological points that, um, you know, whatever God does with this gathering, if, if God moves, uh, continues to, to move us in the direction of starting a church, um, I think it would be good just to talk about... Um, you know distinctives um what uh you know um what do i believe about certain things and um, just want to kind of be open and honest about uh certain topics um and it's uh um you know you you, you can get to topics uh, more quickly if you just kind of tackle the topics rather than walking through a book of the bible um so so that was uh the the thought behind it uh, and I have in my mind already kind of a, a, a list of topics as we go on. I already know what I, I want to talk about next week. And I'll, I'll send it out to you guys in an email and you can kind of mull over it. Um, and then we'll just come together. And I don't have a lesson planned. Um, I don't have any notes. This is all just coming out of my little pea brain. Um, and the and, Bible, hopefully. And, and the Bible. <laughs> and uh, feel, feel free to ask, ask your questions, and I'll try to explain as best I can, but uh, we're going to use the Bible a lot. Um, so I sent out the, the topic of New Covenant theology um, over and against uh, you know, dispensationalism or classic covenant theology. And then there's, there's actually variations of that. There's, you know, now people talk about progressive dispensationalism um, because there's various versions of it. it, it you can't really pigeonhole that. Um, classic covenant theology is probably the most steadfast, mainly because it's um, really derived from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, that's where it was uh, really first established. And that is the theological perspective of like the Presbyterian uh, denomination, primarily covenant theology. Um, Lutherans would probably hold to a form of covenant theology, though they wouldn't describe it that way. Um, but what, what are we talking about when we talk about these differences? Because I know that you've heard those terms probably, right? Um, have you all heard, heard those terms? Dispensationalism, covenant theology, new covenant theology. Even that one, new covenant theology sometimes goes by fulfillment theology. Uh, the latest term seems to be uh, progressive covenantalism. 
Um, but what, what do these mean? These three um, theological terms are really three different theological systems of trying to understand how the Bible fits together um, is really what these, these three views are trying to do. Um, because you probably all have recognized, right, that the Old Testament seems very different from the New Testament. And uh, as a new believer, you probably picked up on that. I know I did. When I was a new Christian, first got saved, I was discipled. You know, I was told, read through the New Testament first, you know, uh, John, then go to Matthew, then Mark, Luke, John again, right? Read through it, the, and then go to the Old Testament. And when I started in the Old Testament, I began to think to myself, man, things seem so radically different from the New. Why are they, I mean, why, why in the Old Testament, you know, the people of God, you know, can't eat pork. They can't work on the Sabbath. They can't eat catfish. They can't eat, you know, lobster, crab, right? Uh, and then you get to the New Testament. It's like all that just kind of goes out the window. I mean, there seems to be so much law in the Old Testament and so rigid. And then you get to the New, and it just seems so freer. I mean, what what is going on with that? And it's a question that has puzzled you know the the church for two for two millennia, so much so that you've had some people like Marcion. Marcion was a, an, an early church theologian who uh, believed and actually taught that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. These are different gods, um, and uh, and so in fact he believed that Christians should just follow the New Testament, um, and he came up with his own Bible where he actually removed even portions of the New Testament where they were quoting the Old Testament at length because he thought, these are two different gods, right? The God of the Old Testament is vengeful and wrathful, and the God of the New Testament is love and mercy and grace, and they can't possibly be the same. Yes? What was that name again? Marcion. 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 M-A-R-C-I-O-N. And so it's, it's it's an important question because, kind of as I said on Sunday, right, the uh, first question to the, the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? You know, the chief end of man is to, to, to glorify God um, by enjoying him forever. Um, we glorify God by knowing God, right? God desires to be known. That's why God has revealed himself to humanity. Right? God is invisible, right? God is spirit, which means God cannot be known, even by Adam and Eve, had he not chosen to make himself known, had he not chosen to reveal himself. Um, God has revealed himself to Adam and Eve, to all of humanity, because he desires to be known. Because the more we know God, the more God is glorified. Um, Because the more we learn about the weightiness of God, right? The greatness of God, the magnificence of God. And the more we learn about that, the more God is exalted in our minds, which means the more we glorify God. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, this is an important question to wrestle with. What is God doing? When we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, how do these connect to each other? What's the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. What's the link between the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the church in 
the New Testament. Um, why is you know the sacrificial system no longer binding today? Why are all those dietary laws just for some reason no longer binding today? Why does it seem like, and I'm choosing my words carefully, why does it seem like in the Old Testament people were saved by works, by law keeping? Um, that's kind of what I thought as a young believer. You know, man, they, they got saved by, you know, keeping the law, all these things they had to do. And in the New Testament it's like, you know, eh, faith and then you're good. Um, why, is, why is it so different? Um, and so that's what these three systems are really trying to understand. And so it's important. Um, you know, it, it, it's important. Theology does matter because, um, you know, a good friend of mine, Robert Dickey, in his book, um, what, the, what the Bible Teaches About Worship, made a, a, a great statement that I actually quote in my own book. And he says that, you know, we cannot, and this is a loose quote, though, of what he said, we cannot rightly worship God if we do not rightly know the God we worship. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's why theology matters. And, and churches and Christians that want to disregard that, um, you know, the latest thing I'm hearing from some people is, yeah, let's just focus on the gospel. Right? It's just all about gospel. It's just gospel. And let's not worry about all of this theological stuff. But to say that is to say that like 90% of the Bible is irrelevant. Um, the Bible is a big book, right? There's a reason it's written on very thin pages and usually with small print. Because if you've ever seen a Bible that is written in like what you would consider normal print on normal pages, uh, you, know, it's, well, you can end up with volumes. You know? <laughs> um, it's a thick book um, because God is a big God. And he wants us to know him. And he wants us to know him well. And he wants us to know him rightly so that we can worship him rightly. Um, so I think this is an important topic to understand. What is God doing in redemptive history? That's a theological phrase that really means the history of redemption. Because that's what, that's what all of world history is about. Um, from you know Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22... The entire story of world history is the story of God redeeming a people to himself and redeeming creation, redeeming all of creation someday. Um, and so I think it's important for us to understand what is God doing in redemptive history, you know, as we go from the old into uh, the new. So I'm going to start um, by just explaining my view, um, how I understand uh, redemptive history. Um, which is, uh, you know, just to be upfront, it's uh, New Covenant theology or Fulfillment theology. You, you might call it um, Progressive Covenantalism. Goes by different terms. Um, and then, when I'm done with that, and you can, you know, interrupt and ask questions, then we'll look at how does it differ from, say, dispensationalism or covenant theology. And understand, I don't think those systems, although I disagree with them, um, I think they are in error. They certainly aren't heresies or dangerous. Um, you know, two of my favorite people that I love to read and still listen to would describe to each of those camps, right? Um, R.C. Sproul held to classic covenant theology. Um, that's why he was Presbyterian. 
not only R.C. Sproul, but one of the guys that endorsed my book, Michael Horton. He is a Presbyterian minister. Um, and then, of course, when you look at the, the other camp, I mean, of course, we all know the most famous you know, dispensationalist is going to be John MacArthur today. And, uh, and I still listen to John MacArthur. Um, I have a great amount of respect for him. Um, uh, but I, just, I disagree with his understanding, and I disagree with R.C. Sproul's understanding. So by saying this, I am not saying that people who hold to those views, well, they're just not very smart and they're not studying their Bible very well. I don't think that at all. I think both R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur have studied their Bibles well. Um, but there are those that um, other names that would ascribe to what I'm talking about here would be uh, people like John Piper, uh, people like Tom Schreiner, um, you know, uh, people like Al Mohler um, would ascribe to the view that I am articulating um, here. So there's bright men in all three camps. Um, so how do I understand? Well, I understand that from the very beginning throughout history, um, God, what, what links all of the pages of redemptive history together, all, the, all of the chapters of redemptive history together, I think are the covenants. So my view is close to covenant theology, but not quite. Um, what I see are these covenants that God establishes um, from the very beginning, right? And when I say from the very beginning, um, even in God creating, there is a covenant with creation. God establishes a covenant with creation. First of all, what is a covenant? A covenant is similar to a promise, but it's stronger um, uh, in the sense that um, with a promise, you know, God can make a promise, and when he makes a promise, he will keep that promise absolutely. But when God enters into a covenant agreement with someone, or in this case with creation, for example, um, it, it, is, it is more of a binding contractual agreement that is designed to bring, a, bring forward redemptive history. So the covenants that God makes, all of the covenants that we see God making, these are designed to bring about the fulfillment of redemptive history. And the reason why God establishes covenants is not necessarily for himself, but for us. In other words, it's God makes these covenants. Some of the most famous ones that you're familiar with is right the covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant there. He makes a covenant with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, these covenants that God makes, they're designed to shore up our faith. Because as human beings, as believers, we are of weak faith. We tend to struggle. Um, I mean, you see that, gosh, one of the best examples is, is the nation of Israel. You know, God performs all of these miracles, right? All of these plagues, parts the Red Sea, leads them out of Egypt. And yet it's not long before they're building a golden calf and they're worshiping it, right? Or they're murmuring about, God brought us out here to kill us. We're going to die from thirst or starvation. I thought you I just mean, jumped out of the fire. What's that? You're right. <laughs> right. So as human beings, we, we, we struggle in our faith. And so God makes these covenants as a way of shoring up our faith and, 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 and making these promises more concrete uh, for us. So a covenant can be decide, de defined as a, as a solemn binding agreement between two or more parties is kind of the classic definition. It is a solemn binding agreement 
between two or more parties. So that's a little different than a promise. This is an agreement between two or more parties. And we see that the very first covenant is actually the covenant of creation. God, when he establishes creation, somehow enters into some sort of binding agreement with creation itself. And although that language is not used in Genesis chapter uh, 1, we see that referenced in Jeremiah 33, for example. Jeremiah 33, verse 19, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priest my ministers. So actually there's two important things happening here because also with the Davidic covenant, when you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll look at that in a moment, and, and God makes a covenant there with David, he doesn't actually use the word. He doesn't actually say, I'm making a covenant with you. He makes promises and prophecies, but doesn't use the word covenant. Where we get that that was a covenant is that it's referenced here, but not just here in Jeremiah 33. If you just do some cross-referencing, there are multiple places in the Old Testament that talk about the covenant that God made with David. Right? But what's important, it says, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night. So God enters into a solemn binding agreement with creation itself. And part of how we know that as well is when you look at Genesis chapter 9, for example. Um, Genesis chapter 9, uh, Noah and his family um, come out of, of the ark and God establishes a covenant with them. And we see in verse 8, Then God said to Noah... And to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now, it's interesting because typically the Hebrew word that is used when God makes a covenant is the Hebrew word karat. And almost like it sounds, it means to cut. I am, I am going to cut a covenant with you. That's the word that God uses with Abraham. I'm going to cut a covenant. Um, because typically animals were cut when a covenant was made. But there's a different Hebrew word that is used here in uh, Genesis 9-8. The Hebrew word that is used here is a word that carries the meaning of reaffirming. I am going to reaffirm. Um, so that essentially, this covenant that we see with Noah is not a new covenant. And, and there is a covenant because he says it multiple times. If you skip down to verse 10, you keep reading. Uh, with, with your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of, out of the ark, it is uh, for every beast of the earth, I establish, there's that word again, my covenant with you, that never again shall all, be, all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature for right... So with every living creature, so it's not just a covenant with Noah, this is a covenant with all of creation. God is essentially promising Noah and all of creation, I will not destroy all of creation with a flood again. And just so you know that I'm going to keep my promise, here's a sign, which by the way, every covenant is also accompanied by a sign. There's a sign that goes with each covenant. It's a sign of the rainbow. 
right? Why does God do that? Again, God doesn't put the rainbow in the sky so that he remembers his covenant, right? God doesn't forget. God puts the rainbow in the sky so that we are reminded that God remembers his covenant, right? It's really established for our benefit. It's established to strengthen our often teetering faith so that when we get these massive hurricanes, these massive downpours, you know, when it's all said and done, we see the rainbow and we're reminded God remembers his covenant. He entered into a covenant between himself and all of creation. But what's interesting is that God is not making a new covenant. He's simply reaffirming the covenant that was created, that was established at creation in Genesis chapter 1. God made a covenant there. He simply reestablishes it. Yes. So he uses covenant like seven times. Is that all the word to reaffirm? I mean, it's just to me, but... Well, covenant, that's that's a different word. I'm talking about the word established. It's the word not, established in, in nine. Yes. When, okay. the, when you see the word established, it's the gotcha. same Hebrew word. A- including in 11? Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's the word established. It's Sorry, the word established. Okay. Okay, so he's making this, he's, he's, he's reaffirming this so covenant. And, um, and if you want to do further reading on that, this, this was brought to my attention by, um, by uh, Dr. Peter Gentry and Steve Willem in their book, Kingdom Through Covenants. It's a, it's a big, thick read. Um, but I thought that was interesting that they, 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 they drew that out. So there is this covenant that is made um, with creation. And, and so notice that this covenant basically preserves all of creation. So there is this overarching covenant, covenant with creation, where God is essentially saying, everything will continue as I have set it in place until all is fulfilled. Right? So until Christ returns, the covenant with creation reminds us that God is not going to cut creation short until all is fulfilled, until Christ returns. Um, so that's the first one. Then there, is, then there is the very next one. So God established this covenant of creation. Then he creates Adam and Eve, right? And he enters into a covenant of works with them. A covenant of works is what's described. Now, you don't find that term in the Bible. Um, but what it was is that, again, there is a solemn agreement between God and Adam, right? And the agreement is simply this. Uh, Adam, uh, you will live eternally and you will remain in perfect covenantal communion with me so long as you do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And so there is this, this mutual agreement between the two. They're, they're, they're in a bond of agreement. Adam's role in this covenant is to obey the one command. God's role is to continue to preserve Adam and all of creation, so long as Adam obeys. Adam violated that covenant, and that's what brings sin into the human race. Again, we don't see the word covenant used in Genesis chapter uh, 2 and 3, but later on in Hosea, for example, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 God is condemning the nation of Israel in, in, in Hosea. But in condemning the nation of Israel because of their sin, remember Hosea prophesied uh, just before the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 to the Assyrians. And, uh, and so Hosea is prophesying, condemning the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel because of their sins. And he says in Hosea 6-7, 
But like Adam, they, Israel, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. But it's interesting that he says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. The implication being that there was a covenant. Right? There was some covenant that God had with Adam. Adam transgressed the covenant and brought sin into the world. So now, sin comes into the world. People are living in sin. Uh, they are doing the best they can with what they have. Remember, the law has not been given until Moses. right? So every, everybody who lives between Adam and Moses... Are uh, so when we talk about the righteous people, you know, um, Enoch walked with God and then was no more. Noah was righteous and God redeemed him. Obviously, Abraham, um, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, they don't have the Ten Commandments. They have whatever God has revealed to them about Himself, and they are trying to be obedient to what God has revealed, which is not much. But whatever God has revealed in terms of His will, they strive to be obedient. It becomes a little more clear with Abraham, right? Abraham is given some specific instructions, the law of circumcision, for example. And, uh, and so Abraham attempts to keep that and be faithful to what God has commanded him uh, to do. Noah was righteous before God. What did that look like? Minimally, I think we can argue, particularly based on um, texts like Romans chapter 3, that Noah strove to live in obedience to his conscience. Right? Because Romans 3 tells us that the law of God is written upon the hearts of men. So, although people in, you know, uh, before Christianity came to the Western world, um, the one thing that always uh, amazed anthropologists is when they discovered these new tribes, they all lived by the same set of laws that the, 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 the Christianized Europe lived by. Um, you know, in, in all of these tribes, it was still murder was wrong, lying was wrong, right? Rape was wrong, uh, stealing was wrong. You know, wow, why do they have the same laws, right? Because the laws of God are written upon the hearts of men. Um, and so Noah likely just uh, strove the best he could to live in obedience to his conscience, understanding that God exists. The knowledge of God was passed down from Adam through Noah and on to Abraham, and they tried the best they can. But the next covenant that we find being established in is really Abraham. What happens with Noah, as I said, is a reaffirming of the covenant. And it's not until you get to Abraham that there is a covenant that is made with Abraham and all of his descendants. And so what we see is that God moves redemptive history forward by means of covenant. First with the covenant of creation, which is still binding. right? It's preserving all of creation until everything happens. Then there's a covenant of works that Adam violates. And now, um, Adam is no longer in, in perfect covenant relationship with God. I say it that way because as believers, we are in covenant relationship with God, but we're still sinners, right? We still sin. Um, we don't have to keep all of God's laws perfectly to remain in covenant relationship with him. But Adam is no longer in that perfect covenant relationship with God because he's violated the covenant and brought sin in, into, into the world. So you get to Genesis. Can I ask a question? Yes. So the covenant with creation is an unconditional covenant, but the covenant of works is a conditional covenant. Uh, yes, the covenant of works with, with Adam was a conditional covenant. That's correct. It was conditioned. Adam would live eternally so long as he obeyed. And then the covenant of creation is an unconditional covenant. God 
God just entered that covenant with creation and he's going to keep that covenant until all is fulfilled, which is not until the end of time. Then you get to Abraham and the covenant's not actually established until Genesis chapter um, 15, but in chapter 12 it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, and what is interesting to note is that Abraham, and this is again where we see um, the sovereignty of God and salvation because Abraham was a pagan by all accounts. Um, in fact, there are later biblical texts uh, which talk about Abraham being a pagan. In fact, um, it's mentioned in, uh, I believe it's Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts. He mentions Abraham as being a pagan who was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And so he says, uh, 1127 of Genesis, now these are the generations of Terah, Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now we know, historically, everybody living in Ur of the Chaldeans at that point, this was a pagan nation. Um, and all of their names are pagan names. And then you get to chapter 12, and now the Lord said to Abraham, so God simply reveals himself to Abraham in a way that he does not reveal himself to Abraham's other two brothers and enters into a saving relationship with him. And he says, Go from your country to the land of your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise becomes huge when we get to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Paul references it quite often um, that this promise was not just to Abraham and his physical descendants, but it is all to all of his spiritual descendants. And, and we'll look at that in, in a moment. But the covenant is made in chapter 15. Now after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he... Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said... Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So this is, again, this is also very important in the mind of Paul when we talk about justification, which we won't tonight. But Paul uses this as a classic example that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. Right? He is uh, declared to be righteous in the eyes of God before even the law of circumcision was given. But that's for a later day. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of, of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Right? So Abraham's asking the question, you know, how do I know that this is really going to happen? And God is gracious to respond. And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, and he brought all of these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each over against the other. And he, and he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. 
And you're probably familiar with the rest of the story. Abraham, God doesn't tell Abraham what to do. Abraham just does it. He understands what is going on. This is a classic uh, suzerain covenant that was uh, made um, in Old Testament uh, biblical times and in this part of the world, Mesopotamia, uh, Babylonia, um, the, uh, the, the, the near ancient east. Um, this is the way solemn covenants were made between people. They would take these animals, they would cut them in half, and they would put them into rows. And then each individual would rock between, walk between the pieces. And when they walked between the pieces, they would then turn and face each other, and they would typically hand each other some sort of sign of the covenant. Here is my staff. The other person might take off a ring. Here is my ring. And the idea, kind of like the rainbow, the idea is that when they go home to their, their homes, every time that person looked at that staff, they would be reminded of the covenant that was made with that other person, whatever that covenant was. And the reason they walked between the, the, the parted pieces, they were communicating to each other, if either one of us violates this covenant, then may what happened to these animals happen to you or me, right? Whoever violates the covenant, right? It, it, it's a way of almost bringing down a curse upon themselves. If I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals actually happen to me. What's amazing about this story, if you remember the story, God puts Abraham to sleep, right? Abraham doesn't walk between the pieces. Only God does. Essentially, God is staking his very existence on the fact, Abraham, I will keep this promise. Or, may what happened to these animals happen to the very God of all of creation. Of course, we know that's not going to happen. But this is the way. So, in the end, who is God doing this for? For himself or for Abraham? He's doing it for Abraham. Abraham says, how will I know? Okay. You want some assurances, right? You want something that's going to bolster your faith. Well, here we go, right? Is Abraham a Jew? Uh, is Abraham a Jew? Not in the technical sense, I suppose. All Jews come from him, but remember, before Abraham, there is no nation of Israel. Yeah. Right? So there are no Jews, so to right. speak. All Jews come from Abraham. Abraham. So, right. So, technically, to refer to him as a Jew would not be accurate because there is no Jewish nation right, at this point. Mean. Right. There's they no Jew Jews. Later on. Right. They become Jews later Isaac on. Isaac is the first Jew. Yes. Well, Jacob's name has changed to Israel. Uh, and then they're known as Israelites thereafter. But even then, they don't become a nation until after the Exodus. The giving of the law is what forms them as a nation. It gives them laws. Right? It establishes a government for them. Prior to that, they're just... The people of God. They're the people of Abraham is how they are referred to. They're the people of Abraham. Um, and so, and in fact, they're really not even referred to as Jews until later on when you get to the, the prophets, the minor prophets, they start to be referred to as Jews. Um, but at this point, uh, Abraham is just a follower of God. He's, he's the people of God. Him and his little family are the people of God at this since point. He believed, since he believed God, then he was... Uh that's where his righteousness comes. That's right. Abraham's righteousness was uh, derived from his faith in God. Yeah. Period. His faith in God. Um, and so then what is the promise? So then you see verse 17 and following. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So, different word. Made, that's the Hebrew word karat. He cut a covenant with Abraham. Saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Riphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now here's what's interesting. To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt, right? That would be the Nile River, from the Nile, to the river Euphrates. If you look on a map, the river Euphrates runs through modern-day um, Baghdad, right? So it is, it is a large section of the Middle East. Um, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament never extended that far. It extended the farthest under Solomon, which was vast, but never from the Nile River all the way to the Euphrates, which runs right through the middle of modern day. In, in biblical times, it would go as far as Babylon, the city of Babylon, right? Um, Israel never took up that much territory. Um, but that's the promise that God makes to, to Abraham, to you and to your uh, descendants. So what do we do with that? And this is this right here is where the different systems start to wrestle, right? How does this get fulfilled? Will this get fulfilled? And in what way will it go, get fulfilled, right? Dispensationalism, covenant theology, uh, new covenant theology answer that question differently. Because we all agree there's a promise being made here and this promise somehow has to be fulfilled because God keeps his promises, right? At the end of time, it's being fulfilled. At the end of time, yes. Yes, at the end of time. But then that's where the debate continues. What defines the end of time, right? Because that's where your different eschatological views come into play as well. Then you start to talk about dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. These are different views on what does the end of time look like and how are these fulfilled. But I don't want to get on the topic of end times. Um, well, what I'm saying is that when Jesus comes to be the king of Israel, I'm pretty sure that's when he's going to make all that happen. But I would say he's already come to be the king of Israel. No, the second time. <laughs> when he actually becomes the king of Israel. Um, I would say he already is. And when he comes the second time, he will be the king of all of his people. And yes, this will be fulfilled at that time. Yeah, that's all I was saying. And so, um, yeah. But again, how we understand those terms can be very different when we talk about end times. Um but I don't want to talk about end times because you really can't even talk about end times until you understand redemptive history. Like, what is happening in, in the Bible? How do these promises get fulfilled? They do get fulfilled at the end. And everybody would agree with that. Everybody would agree that they get fulfilled at the end. The question is exactly how and what does it look like is the question. Um, and that's where the debate can continue even when we talk about end times. So, nonetheless, there's a covenant made here. And then in chapter 17, there is the sign of the covenant that is given, which is the sign of circumcision. So, again, you see which each covenant, there is a sign that is given uh, for that covenant. And the idea there is that every time a Jewish boy is circumcised, 
it reminded the parents, the people of Israel, of the covenant that God made with Abraham, that God would fulfill his promises. And this, by the way, is an unconditional covenant that God makes with Abraham. Abraham isn't required to do anything other than believe, right? Simply believe. But God does not have Abraham walk through the pieces for a reason. God is telling Abraham, I'm going to do this, right? I am going to fulfill these promises and you don't have to contribute anything, Abraham. I'm going to do everything on your behalf. So then these covenants then continue um, and you get to... um, the next one in line is the Mosaic Covenant. And is this one roughly number four? Well, the first one is the covenant with creation. Yeah. The second one is the covenant of works with Adam. Yeah. And then this is actually, the Abraham is the third covenant. Because remember, the one with Noah is a reaffirming of the covenant with creation. Right. Yeah. I'm on track there. So then, these covenants continue. And um, up until you get to... Exodus chapter 20 with the giving of the law. Right? Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments is given and there is a covenant that is made there. It's actually referenced in um, many places in the Old Testament but we see it in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews talks about Moses the sprinkling of blood in order to make a covenant. So this is oftentimes known as the, uh, the covenant of law or sometimes the Mosaic Covenant, meaning Moses, the covenant that Moses made. So this is the covenant of law, or the, the, the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, this, is a, this is a covenant. This, this would be considered to be a um, conditional covenant, right? Because multiple times when God gives this covenant, I mean, the whole idea of the cursing and the blessings that have to be pronounced from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is that if you keep these laws, right? If you are faithful to the covenant, then God will continue to be your God. One of the reasons God rejects them and uh, the northern kingdom is carried away in 722 BC, the southern kingdom is carried away to Babylon and destroyed by uh, in 586 BC is because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. Now remember when when I say that it is a conditional covenant, that's not to say that they had to keep the law perfectly and that they couldn't sin. Um, that is why God made provision for sin with the sacrificial system, right? There are sins that could be committed that they could offer a sacrifice and be forgiven, be atoned for. And, and in the great day of atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, once a year, in case there were sins out there that were committed that the Israelites weren't familiar with, the great high priest once a year goes into the, 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 the Holy of Holies, offers the, the sacrifice in the great day of atonement. That takes care of all of the sins that maybe Israelites weren't familiar with so there is grace in the Mosaic Covenant. There is grace in the covenant of law. But they had to keep the covenant at least in the sense that we're going to continue to observe the Passover faithfully. We're going to continue to observe the Day of Atonement faithfully. That as a people, if we sin, if I sin, I am going to go and offer the appropriate sacrifice at the temple, right? That's what it means to keep the law, to be faithful to the law. God says to them on numerous occasions that um, I will be your God if you remain faithful to me and to this covenant. So God enters into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. So here's what's interesting is that as we continue to move uh, forward in, in these 
covenants. Well, actually, I'll say that when we get to the next covenant. So there's the covenant of law. This covenant remains in place and keeps them together as a nation until we get to the next one that's established, which is the covenant made with David in 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Passover is not a covenant that is established there. That actually is used to establish the new the new covenant. Um, but the, uh, the 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 giving of the law, uh, the the law itself, the Ten Commandments is uh, is the covenant, and the sign of the covenant is the Ten Commandments. The Passover is a meal that was observed annually to remind them of the day in which God delivered them out of Egypt. Right. But there's not a covenant that is made. In the Passover meal, right? I was thinking when he passed over, like when the original Passover happened, when he got out of Egypt. Right. There's no covenant made with that. Uh, that's never referred to as a covenant in in uh, in Scripture. So then, Second Samuel chapter seven. Second Samuel chapter seven. You might remember the story um, in chapter six. God, or I'm sorry, David. David wants to. Um, David wants to build an ark. Uh, not an ark. David wants to build a, a house for for uh, for God because he feels bad at the fact that you know I'm living in this nice palace. The ark of the covenant is just in a tent. Still, it's been in a tent for hundreds of years at this point. Uh, it, it ought to, you know God ought to have a temple. And, uh, and God uh, basically sends uh, the prophet Nathan to say to him, look, you know, you, you're not going to do this. There's too much blood on your hands. Uh, your son is going to build me a, a temple. But what he says to Nathan in verse 4, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought uh, I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares... To you that the Lord will make you a house. He will make you a house, David. Now here's where it gets really significant. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, right? When you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Hmm, are we talking about Solomon? Who are we talking about? He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that's significant, because Solomon's throne was not established forever. In fact, we know that the line of David comes to an end until 
Christ comes, who is the legitimate heir to the throne of David. But the, the, but the, the kings did not sit on the throne of David forever. By 586 BC, the Babylonians destroy the temple, they destroy all of Jerusalem, um, and then they start putting puppet kings um, on the throne of David. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. So it's interesting that in this prophecy, God seems to be going back and forth. On the one hand, he's not talking about the physical descendants of David like Solomon, but on the other hand, he is. Um, in that when the physical descendants of David in the Old Testament, when these southern kings sinned, God would discipline them. Um, we know that Jesus never sinned. Verse 15, But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put from before you. And your house, David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So whoever God ultimately is talking about here through the prophet Nathan, it can't be Solomon. And it can't be the physical descendants of David who sat upon the throne of David because the throne of David comes to an end by 586 BC when the Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom. The New Testament prophets understood that this was a reference to Christ. That Christ is the son of David whose throne will be forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. In fact, that's what one of the that's what the angel says to Mary mm -hmm. when he prophesies that you're going to have a son. They will call his name Emmanuel and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right? He will be the son of David, the angel says. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's when this prophecy becomes fulfilled in Christ, who is the legitimate heir to the throne of David. So here is what's interesting about these covenants, is what you can't miss, is that as God establishes each covenant, it's like a funnel that becomes narrower and narrower as it focuses on Christ. It's almost like taking a, a, a magnifying glass, and you, know, and you, you, you get the sun to shine through it, and, it, and it's sort of this big, bright light. But as you focus it, right, you can sort of pinpoint that light. And that's what these covenants are doing. They are pinpointing the light of God onto Christ. Because you start with this massive covenant of creation that is with all of creation, right? All people, every nation, every continent, all of the animals, the sun and the moon, according to Jeremiah chapter uh, 33, right? Uh, there's this, this covenant with creation and then as you move forward the next covenant that is is established is uh, well there's the covenant with, with Adam which again is a covenant with all of humanity right Adam was the federal representative of all of humanity so even though there's just one man and one woman they represented all of humanity so you've got a covenant with all of creation to a covenant with all of humanity right then the next one that's actually established that, that's new is the covenant with Abraham. But now this is a covenant with just Abraham and his descendants. Not the people in China, not the people in Africa, not the people in North America. Right now God has selected a people out of humanity to make this covenant with. 
right? And then you have these sons because Abraham has two sons, right? Um, 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 Isaac and Ishmael, right? Isaac and Ishmael. But yet the covenant is handed on to Isaac and not Ishmael, right? So two sons, but the covenant goes to Isaac and not Ishmael, right? And then um, Isaac uh, has two sons, right? Esau, Jacob and Esau, right? The covenant goes to one. Both of them are physical descendants of Abraham, Jacob and Esau, but the covenant doesn't go to both of them. The covenant goes down to one. So you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, from which come the 12 sons, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. And in the Mosaic law, God makes a covenant with the sons of Jacob. The sons of Jacob, right? Not the sons, not the sons of Isaac, not 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 Esau, right? But only Jacob and only the sons of Jacob, right? So now the, the covenant is, is getting narrower, right? You go from all of creation to all of humanity to one people group within humanity to one specific son, you know, from this person, from Abraham, right? One specific son. And then of those 12 tribes, there's a covenant made with one king from one tribe, and that is the tribe of Judah, right? So these covenants just keep narrowing down to Christ so that when Christ comes, he is the son of David, right? He's the son of David. So all of these covenants are narrowing until you get to the new covenant, and that's what makes the new covenant so very different. Jeremiah chapter 31 is where it's prophesied about. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. At this point, the nation of Israel, they're a mess, right? They're, they're north, south, uh, they're sinning, um, and, and they're just being disobedient in so many different ways. And then God says in verse 31 through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. There are several very important points to note about this covenant. First of all, in verse 33, because he says, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel, uh, that is unlike, right? Verse 32, he says, Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So he says, This new covenant is going to be radically different than the prior covenants that I made with Israel. Specifically, the covenant of law, the Mosaic covenant. It's going to be different 
how is it going to be different? Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Number one, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So what's going to be different is that under the Mosaic law, the law was external, written on tablets of stone. Right? There's a law. You read it and you try to obey it. God says the new covenant, the law is going to be written on their hearts. It'll be internalized. In other words, they'll have a natural desire. Whoever this applies to, whoever this applies to, they will have a natural desire to want to fulfill the laws of God, to want to please God, to want to glorify God. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So that's what's going to be significant as well. That whatever this new covenant is, let's assume we don't really know at this point, whatever this new covenant is, whoever is in, the, whoever is in this new covenant community will not need to evangelize each other. Because everybody who is a part of this new covenant will know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. That is different from the Mosaic Covenant. Under the Mosaic Covenant, all Israelites were a part of the covenant community. Right? You were born to Jewish parents. You were circumcised. You were raised a Jew. Right? You are a part of the, the covenant community of God. And yet, nonetheless... The prophets were constantly going to fellow Israelites and saying what? Know the Lord. Stop worshiping Baal. Stop worshiping at pagan temples. Repent of your sin. They were evangelizing those inside the covenant community. God says, when I establish this new covenant, no longer will you evangelize people within the covenant community because they will all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Thirdly, what will make it different, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. That's different because in the Old Testament, I mean, you go back, goodness, you read uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and he talks about the fact that, you know, what was the point of all of these sacrifices that were offered over and over and over because in these are a reminder of sin. You know, all of the sacrifices offered in the Old Testament, according to the author of Hebrews, were never intended to atone for sins um, because they were just mere animals, right? Animals weren't the ones that brought sin into the world. Humans did. So the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, according to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10. So what was the point of all of that? To remind us of our sinfulness and to remind us of the fact that we need a Savior, right? That was the whole point of this bloodbath that took place all the time. Can when I the new ask yes just a second sure. I don't want this to... you're talking about the funnel theory yes okay so when it when it becomes narrower and narrower and narrower and it gets to Christ as being that fulfillment isn't Christ the only person that met both sides of the genealogy he was the only common denominator from Joseph and Mary that trickled down throughout all of the genealogy is that correct that he had he had a direct line to David through both Mary and through both Joseph. Um, that is correct. Yes, okay. yes. That that he was related. Yes, through so, both lines. So that further points him to that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. 
Um, but here's what's interesting is that in this new covenant, God says, I will remember the sins no more. Done. Mm-hmm. Whatever this new covenant is, and whoever is in this new covenant, God says, I will no longer remember. So there's not going to be a need for all of these sacrifices then. Right? Um, and that's part of why the sacrificial system goes away. So, I thought it was because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Yes. And since he's the ultimate sacrifice, those who are in the covenant, their sins are completely, entirely atoned for, so God remembers their sins no more. Right? So the entire sacrificial system um, is, becomes null and void because Christ is the high priest, according to Hebrews, and he is the ultimate sacrifice as, as well. Um, but you're not atoned for it unless you believe in him. That's right, unless you believe in him. Yeah. But here's what's interesting then. If you go to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, Jesus establishing the Lord's Supper. And he says in verse 20, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The disciples would have immediately, their minds would have gone back to Jeremiah 31. You know, they were steeped in the Old Testament. They knew their Bibles well. And when he said, This is the blood of the new covenant, they would have understood... This is Jeremiah 31, right? That is being established here. So if Christ is inaugurating, which is what he is doing, Christ is inaugurating the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31, then those who are brought into the new covenant is not just the nation of Israel. Because we go back to Jeremiah 31, and what does it say? The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But is it just the house of Israel and the house of Judah? Because if it is, then the Lord's Supper cannot be taken by us. Right? Clearly, when God establishes this new covenant, it is for more than just the house of Judah or the house of of Israel. We also know that because you look at Hebrews chapter 9... Uh, oh, I'm in Romans. It helped if I went to the right book. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8. So Hebrews chapter 8. And so the author of Hebrews has been making the argument through chapter 6 and chapter 7 that uh, Christ is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And because Christ is the great high priest who ultimately atones for our sins, he makes the argument that by nature there had to be a change in the law. So let's go back to chapter 7, first of all, verse 11. 
He says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather than one named after the order of Aaron, remember in the Old Testament, all of the priests were supposed to come from the line of Aaron. They were supposed to be Levites. He goes on to say, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. There has to be a change in the law as well. For, he says in verse 13, the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar, no one has ever been a priest. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So the author of Hebrews is recognizing that, okay, let's think through this. If Christ is our great high priest, which he is, he's not a Levite. He doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. He comes from the tribe of Judah, right? Um, and so he's making the argument that if there is a change in the priesthood, then of necessity there must be a change in the law. So what is that change? Now, skip to chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying, I'm so thankful he clears this up, right? He's like, okay, let me just, let me just make the point here. Here's what I'm saying. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if it were on earth, if he were on earth, he would not be a high priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy of and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent, that is better, that surpasses the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. In other words, the covenant that Christ inaugurates is better and surpasses the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of law that established the nation of Israel. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, right? If the law of Moses was good enough, then why is there a new covenant? What, what would be the point of Jeremiah 31? Um, what would be the point of Christ establishing a new covenant? Look what he says in verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming. He quotes Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this is interesting now because we understand that this is, this is, new test, this is an epistle in the New Testament that applies to all believers. Mm -hmm. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And we know that because when we go back to chapter 7 and all of this language that he is using that Christ um, is the great high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for all sins, we know that that applies to all believers, right? Um, you look at uh, verse um, 23 of Hebrews chapter 7, for example. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented uh, by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession uh, for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Right. So clearly, as we're going through Hebrews chapter 7, he is making the point that Christ is the high priest for all people. For all those who put Jews and Gentiles, all those who put faith in Christ, Thus, when we get to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, and he begins to cite Jeremiah 31, he is applying this to all believers, Jews and Gentiles. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, there's that phrase again. What, how do we understand that? I'll explain in a moment. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. All right, here's the clincher, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He makes the first one obsolete. In other words, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, becomes obsolete because the purpose for which it was established is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. He inaugurates the new covenant so that those who place faith in Christ are brought into a new covenant relationship with God. The laws of God are written upon the hearts of men. We see that in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, for example, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter um, 3, verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Mm -hmm. Right. So, those who are brought into covenant relationship with Christ, uh, because of what Christ did for us, the laws of God are internalized. They're written upon our hearts. We have this natural desire to want to live for the glory of God and to please Him. Um, and uh, those who are in the new covenant, those who are in covenant relationship with Christ, are saved. Right now, we may struggle with knowing, you know, who's in the new covenant and who isn't, right? Because we can't see faith, right? We can't. I can't see into people's hearts. But those, but everyone who is truly inside the covenant community are all believers. You cannot be in the covenant community of God and not be a believer. And God remembers our sins no more, right? So the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, 7, and 8, is clearly applying all of this to all people. But we still have to wrestle with the question, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, right? Uh, okay, well what do we do with that then? Well, I think Paul helps us understand that quite clearly when you look at Romans 
Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul himself is saying, I'm grieved. I'm grieved by the fact that my fellow Jews have rejected Christ. Remember, Jesus himself said, he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Right? You reject Christ, you are rejecting the God of Abraham. You are rejecting the God of creation. This grieves Paul. He says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He goes on to say, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Another, the Messiah came through them. But then notice what Paul says. Right? Because Paul has to Paul has to wrestle with this question. What do we do with all of the promises that were given to Israel in the Old Testament? If they rejected the Messiah, which Paul understands, Jesus said he rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Right? The vast majority of Israelites, when they crucified Christ, rejected Christ. Even today, most Jews reject that the Messiah has come. So what Paul has to wrestle with what do we do with all of those promises given to the nation of Israel? The promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, the covenant, right? To you, your descendants, this land from the Nile to the Euphrates. What do we do with that? What do we do with the promise that was given to David that your descendants will reign upon this throne forever and I will establish your kingdom forever? What, what do we do with that? What do we do with the promise of Jeremiah 31? Here's what Paul says, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, God keeps his promises. Right? He, he's very upfront. Don't think God didn't keep his promise. Don't think God isn't going to keep his promises. He will. Right? It is not as though the word of God has failed. Here's Paul's explanation. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now scratch your head on that for a minute. Because he's talking about the person Israel. Right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Paul says, not all who are descended from the person Israel actually belong to Israel. Well, wait a minute. What does that mean? And not all are children of Abraham. Not all of the physical descendants of Israel are actually children of Abraham. If you stop and think about that for a minute, you're going, okay, Paul, you're losing me here. How does he explain this? Here's how he explains it. Because they are, simply because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh. It's not the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It is not, it is, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall bear a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, 
she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated so then you probably are most of you are familiar with Romans chapter 9 Paul goes through to talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation that it's not about works it's also not about physical descendancy now in chapter 9 he is specifically making the argument that it's not about works right in chapter 9 he's making the argument it's not about works but when you get to chapter 10 he then begins to make the argument that it is also not about physical descendancy right look at uh, look at chapter uh, 10 uh, verse 1 brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge he's talking about physical Israelites ethnic Israelites for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes alright now skip over to chapter uh, 11 because Paul continues this argument for three chapters Right? He's, he starts in chapters uh, 9, 10, and then 11. And he keeps coming back to the same question. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. I asked him, has God rejected his people? He's talking about the physical uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Has God rejected them? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite. So Paul says, look, I'm living proof that God hasn't rejected all of the Israelites because I'm an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophet. They have demolished your altars and I alone and left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. In other words, there is a remnant within the people of God that will be saved but not all ethnic Israelites but if it is by grace it is no longer the basis of works otherwise grace would no longer be be grace alright now go on to verse 11 this is where he now he's going to start talking about how it has nothing to do with ethnicity so I asked did they stumble in order that they might fall talking about Israelites by no means rather through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous now, if their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So now he's talking to Gentiles. Inasmuch then I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, non-Jews, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches, talking about ethnic Jews, were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be ethnic Israelites were broken off so that me a Gentile could be grafted in that is true Paul says they were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand fast through faith 
And so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Right? And so, Paul is making the argument that, um, keep going, now skip down to verse 25, and then I'll make my point. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, ethnic Jews, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a point when which the last Gentile is going to be grafted in, brought into the covenant community, has come in, and in this way, listen, all Israel will be saved. So Paul understands, Paul understands that the Israel of God are all those who are in union with Christ by faith. Because ultimately Christ, according to the apostles, Christ himself is the true Israel. Christ is the Israel of God. So those who are brought into union with Christ by faith are the true Israel of God by means of our union with Christ, who is the Israel of God. And where I'm getting that from is the apostles. Matthew sees this at the very beginning. Um, if you remember, um, when uh, um, Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, right? When they flee to Egypt, um, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, out of Egypt have I called my son. Do you remember that? Right? Out of Egypt have I called my son. What's interesting is he's citing Hosea chapter 11. And if you go back and you read Hosea chapter 11, it's very clear that God is talking about the nation of Israel. But Matthew understands that the whole story of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is actually foreshadowing of Christ himself. The life of Christ recapitulates the story of Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Son of God. Those who are in union with Christ by faith therefore become the true Israel of God. And this is Paul's understanding. We see that in so many other places. Um, another place that comes to mind is, is Ephesians, for example. Ephesians chapter 3. Um, Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, Paul gets done talking about how we're all in union uh, with Christ by faith. And then he says in verse 6, this mystery, and so in, in chapter 2, verses 11 and following, he talks about the fact how Christ came, broke down the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile so as to create one new man, one new humanity in Christ by faith. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, listen to this, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. All of the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament um, are also given to Gentile believers, not because Gentile believers are some sort of an, an afterthought or a parenthesis, but because both Jews and Gentiles who are in union with Christ by faith are the Israel of God. Now, I want to be clear, because some of you may have heard this term, I am not talking about replacement okay, theology. That's what I, put my question was be. <laughs> I am not talking about replacement theology. You're talking about the body of Christ. That is, that is such a... People who argue that are just... 
Well, they're just misunderstanding. I think they're yes. misunderstanding dispensationalism and covenant theology and new covenant theology all together. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the church doesn't replace the nation of Israel. The, the, the church is a natural progression and continuation of the nation of Israel. In other words, Paul is an Israelite, right? Paul is a Jew, right? Was Paul a part of the church? Yep. Yes. Right? Paul was a part of the church. All of the apostles were a part of the church, right? Um, Paul does not see himself as leaving Judaism and joining the Christian church. Paul sees himself as embracing Judaism. The Messiah has come, right? And he's he's inaugurated the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31. To put your faith in Christ brings you into the new covenant community. And, 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 and it has to do with the problem that the way we interpret the Greek word for church, uh, ekklesia is the Greek, and we translate that as church. But the Greek word ekklesia simply actually means it, it just simply means the assembled ones or the assembled or the called out ones right and that's where the word comes from it comes from two Greek words at which means out and from the Greek word kaleo which means to call because I mean it's a word you find in extra biblical Greek literature right it was we're going to assemble out in the, the Areopagus so to speak right and so we're calling people out to assemble and to form an assembly. A lot of people don't realize this, that in the Old Testament, in the, in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, in the Septuagint, the word ekklesia appears in the Old Testament multiple times. But in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, it's always translated as assembled. You see it in Exodus, where the people of God assembled in front of the mountain. It's the word ekklesia, but it's not translated church, right? Because it's in the Old Testament. For some reason, we get to the New Testament and we start using the word church everywhere. So it gives this idea that like this is something completely new. It's just the people of God gathering. It's the people of God assembling. And so this is, we're not, this is, there's no replacement going on because that doesn't even make any sense. Because when people talk about the church was established at Pentecost, um, in one sense, I agree with that, and in another sense, I disagree. Do they mean just the formal institution of the church? Yes and no. And Do they mean just the formal institution of the church? Um, in that way, I would agree that the church, the New Testament church, um, let me rephrase that. The, the, the people of God, as they worship in the New Testament era, that shift does begin at Pentecost. But if we talk about the church in terms of the people of God, the ecclesia, right? The assembled people of God, they've always existed from the beginning. There has always been one people of God from old into new, right? The only difference when we go to the old to the new is the inaugurating of the new covenant and the fulfillment of the prior covenants, right? Specifically, the covenant of, of, of law, right? The covenant of law. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3. It's 9 o'clock, babe. This should have been a two-parter. Oh, okay. Two-parter. Well, we can make it a two-part. <laughs> All right, I'll... I'll uh... was, there a, was there an end time we needed to end? I'm good. I don't have school. <laughs>
Are we good? Do I need to wrap this up? So in Hebrews 10, 25, when it says assembling, would that be Nicotia? Um, I'd have to look it up in the Greek, 1025, when it says it assembled. It might be. You're saving yourself assembling. Yeah. Yes. I'd have to check the Greek. I don't have my Greek New Testament with me. Um, because sometimes in the New Testament, the word ecclesia is translated as just assembly, depending on context. Sometimes it's church, sometimes it's assembly. Um, but, but, but I think that creates confusion because ecclesia appears in the, in the Septuagint at, at any rate, um, but it's never translated church in the Old Testament. And we understand why, right? It'd be a little confusing to see the word church because we've given it this New Testament meaning um, that I think is really sort of a, 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 a misnomer um, almost. But in Galatians, in Galatians, um, uh, Galatians chapter uh, 3, beginning in verse uh, 15, yeah, verse 15. Um, so Paul is asking the question, why the law is given, right? Why, why, why then the law? Um, because he's been making the argument that justification is by faith alone. So then, so then, why the law? Um, notice verse 15. To give you a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one knows that it adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promise, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. That's important then. What Paul wants us to understand is the promises that we talked about in Genesis chapter 15 of that land from the Nile to the Euphrates, right? Paul is saying the promises weren't actually made to Abraham, but to his offspring, who is Christ. That promise is made to Christ. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant which was previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham promise. Why then the law? Right? In other words, if the law can't save people... Why did God give the law in the first place? To show you what your sins were. That's part of it. Yes, absolutely. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. That if it were not for the law, I would not know what it means to covet, right? That's certainly part of it. But here's the reason that he's giving here. It was added because of transgressions. Until, notice the temporal language, until the offspring should come. What offspring? He just finished saying that the promise was given to Abraham's offspring, who is Christ. So, the law was put in place until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, referring to Christ, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If the law could have saved people, salvation would have been by the law. But the scripture imprisoned, this is important, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law imprisoned people under sin. Now before faith came we were held captive under the law. He's talking about the Mosaic law. Imprisoned until, temporal language again right? Which implies it was never intended to be permanent. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, which is Paul's way of talking about when Christ comes and we understand that salvation is by faith and not by law keeping until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was 
Notice the past tense language. The law was our guardian until Christ came. The word guardian, very important. It's the Greek word patigogos. A patigogos in the New Testament was typically a household servant or slave whose job it was to make sure the children of the, uh, the, the owner of the, of the property you know, did not get in trouble. When they went to school, the patigogos would follow them to make sure that they got there. He would wait outside the schoolroom. When they came back, he would follow them home to make sure they didn't wander off, right? And they came home. And then he, if he was an, uh, an educated patigogos, he might tutor them and help them with their schoolwork. Interesting, Paul says the law was our patigogos until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, now that the realization through the coming of Christ that we are saved by faith alone, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, a patigogos. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. In other words, what Paul is arguing is that the law was put in place as a guardian to hem in the people of God. Right? God gives this promise to Abraham. Through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Right? Makes a covenant with him. That covenant is passed down through the nation of Israel. A covenant is given to David that your descendant, David, will reign upon your throne and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right? Had the law been not put into place, had God, because what did the law do essentially for the nation of Israel? What the law does for the nation of Israel is it screamed one message to the other nations, stay out, right? Keep your distance, right? We are Israelites, we are Jews, right? And, and we don't intermingle with you. It kept the nation of Israel separate from the world. Had the law not been given, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have intermarried with all kinds of surrounding nations and they would have scattered all over the world. And when the Messiah came, there would be no way of knowing that the Messiah had come. In other words, the only reason Matthew and Luke are able to trace the genealogy of Christ from Mary and Joseph all the way back to Abraham is because of the law. The law kept them together and hemmed them in and separated them from the people of God. Once Christ came and inaugurated the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, for all those who place faith in Christ, the law has fulfilled its purpose. The purpose for which the law was established is no longer needed because the Messiah has come. Right? That's why the dietary laws, the food laws, a lot of those disappear because they were only temporary to bring about the promised Messiah. Now the sacrificial laws disappear because Christ fulfills all of that. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the ultimate high priest. We no longer need to do any of that. Right? So the connection, the connection between the Old and the New Testament then, you know, and why we see the difference is that throughout all of redemptive history, God is moving redemptive history forward by means of these covenants. And each covenant narrows down to Christ until you get to Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, and then when Christ fulfills the new covenant, then it explodes outward. So it's almost like an hourglass. You have these covenants that focus down to Christ, and then once he inaugurates the new covenant with his own blood, then it expands outward to both Jews and Gentiles worldwide are all incorporated into the new covenant 
and they are the new Israel of God. So there isn't this replacement going on. Jesus is the true Israel. Mm -hmm. We become the true Israel of God by being brought into... In other words, it's just like the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, is it just ethnic descendants of Abraham that could be considered true Jews? Anybody want to answer that? No. 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 Right? You could convert to Judaism and be considered a true Jew. Right? Rahab. Ruth. Right? They weren't, they weren't ethnic Jews, but yet they're in the descendancy of Jesus. Right? You could convert to Judaism, and from there forward, all of your descendants are, you're Jewish. You're a Jew. You are a true part of the nation of Israel. Right? Even though they weren't ethnic. We get to the New Testament. It doesn't change. The difference, is, the difference however, is that in the Old Testament... There was an ethnic and physical identity of the people of God. In the New Testament, there is a spiritual identity of the people of God. And that spiritual identity of the people of God is those who are in union with the true Israel, who come into the true Israel and convert, so to speak, by putting faith in the Messiah. They are brought into the true Israel of God, who is Christ, and thus are the true Israel of God. And so... The New Testament church is the natural progression of the Old Testament. It's the natural outgrowth of all of the covenants that are all pushing forward to the new. Now, the Davidic covenant is still in place because Christ is the son of David who is reigning upon the throne of David from the right hand of God the Father as Stephen sees him in the book of Acts, right? I see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God the Father. Christ is reigning from the throne from the right hand of God the Father. The covenant with creation is still in place. That's going to be in place until uh, the coming of, of, of Christ. So that is is still there. Um, it's primarily the Mosaic covenant. The, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, we're in the middle of that. That's that. We are in the process of that. It's the Mosaic Covenant that becomes fulfilled. It was put in place. And of course, the Abrahamic Covenant. So what do we do with that? The promise of the land between um, the Nile and the Euphrates. Well, Paul actually answers that question for us in Romans chapter... Romans chapter uh, uh, 4... Yeah, 13. Yeah, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So, you can't miss those little words. Where in the Old Testament did God ever promise Abraham that he would be heir of the world? He doesn't. Not in the Old Testament. What Paul understands, because now that you got to remember, Paul's... His theology was radically transformed in his Damascus Road experience. And he understood Jesus is the true Israel. All those who come into faith with him in union with Christ become the true Israel. All believers are someday going to inherit the earth. right? Even Jesus does that in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, that's a quote from the Psalms. 
Um, you have to go back and check the cross-reference. But in the Old Testament, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Yet Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? You go to Revelation chapter 22, and what happens? All believers inherit the, entire, the new earth. Right? The new earth, we inherit all of it. So what Paul understands is that if all believers are the true descendants of Abraham, we are the true Israel, then yes, the promise given to Abraham, which again, we already saw in Galatians, Paul understands the promise given to Abraham his offspring was actually given to Christ. Right? The promise is actually given to Christ according to Paul in Galatians chapter, uh, chapter 3. Christ will inherit the earth. So when we ask the question, will the descendants of Abraham, as Paul understands them, and we just saw in Romans chapter 8 and 9, the descendants of Abraham are not those who are physical descendants, but those who are in union with Christ by faith. Will the descendants of Abraham inherit the land between the Nile and the Euphrates someday? The answer is yes, and then some. Yes, and then some. This is what Paul meant when he said, it's not as though the promise has been void. It's not as though God has forgotten his word or that God will keep... He will keep his promises to the true descendants of Abraham, to the true Israel. All of the promises in the Old Testament will be fulfilled in a very grand scale because Jesus is the true Israel and he will ultimately inherit all things, right? He will inherit all things. All things will be set at his feet according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. God the Father will hand everything over to him and everything will be set at his feet feet um, so that's the connection between the Old Testament going into um, the New uh, Testament and that's why we see the change that is what God is doing in uh, redemptive uh, history yes Bobby so then if you can briefly sure I'll try <laughs> no, well, yeah, no, brief Explain the difference between covenant theology, new, new covenant theology, and sure. dispensationalism. Okay. Where, where's, the, where's the actual, where's the rubber meet the road between those two? There, there, there's, a, there's a link there because they're, they're all yeah. believers. They are. I think I can be brief on those because I'm not going to do a whole lesson on dispensationalism. I could, but I'm not going to. Um, covenant theology. Here, here's the difference, is that they have a fundamental misunderstanding of the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31. And I've told them this. I've debated this with my... my I, I've got Presbyterian friends that are pastors, and I love them to death, but uh, I tell them they're wrong all the time. Um, so, they see, they see that all of the covenants are... They use the language, all of the covenants are organically linked until all is fulfilled at the end of time. In other words, each covenant builds upon the previous covenant without abrogating the prior covenant. So each covenant stays in place and the sign of each covenant stays in place. This is why they baptize infants because of Colossians chapter 2. They believe that baptism replaces circumcision so that the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is still in place, but we don't circumcise, we baptize our infants. And therefore they also believe that just like in the Old Testament, when, when children were born to Jewish parents, they were by default members of the covenant. Now that doesn't mean that they were saved, 
they understood that right the prophets were going to fellow Jews and saying know the Lord repent right but they were assumed to be members of the covenant of God they were assumed to be saved unless they became adults and then just went headlong into pagan idolatry uh, then you could say okay well now we know that they're not they're not going to go to heaven they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God that's why Presbyterians they baptize their infants and they presume this child is a part of the covenant community they are a part of the covenant community we presume that they will be saved and that they are saved unless they demonstrate otherwise um, they are misunderstanding Jeremiah 31 that all those who are in the covenant will know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them um, and I will remember their sins no more and they, w- they will be my people and I will be their God they're misunderstanding Jeremiah 31 they're not properly applying it and so the problem with, with covenant theology is that they, they, they don't see a break at all that all the covenants just continue it's also the reason why they're very Sabbatarian the Mosaic law is still in place primarily the Decalogue so we keep the Sabbath uh, you know your, your Orthodox Presbyterians you don't do any work on Sunday it is the Lord's Day it is the Sabbath Ten Commandments they're still under the law in a lot of ways they're still bound by the law the key, the key thing is that they, they, they don't think anything's been abrogated right yeah. right or, for, or fulfilled. Yeah, they don't think the law, the covenant, the law of Moses has been fulfilled. Really, but it's still binding. They still say that the sacrificial systems have been fulfilled in Christ. Yes, they so would there, say they would some say, things yeah. that are fulfilled. In right, Christ, they, right. You guys gotta go. Yeah. All right. Bye guys. Night. Um, um, the dispensationalist, dispensationalist, they, um, and of course, there's various versions of it. So it's hard to, to pigeonhole it. Like you've got your classic dispensationalist, John Darby, who really started dispensationalism in the 1800s in Ireland. And then that gets carried over by uh, Charles Schofield, early 1900s in America, Schofield Study Bible. And then, then, and then there's the Ryrie Study Bible that took, took, took its place and then the MacArthur. And with each one, they become a little less uh, dogmatic. Right. Uh, even MacArthur calls himself a leaky dispensationalist, and I, I think that's because he, he, he got to hanging around with guys like R.C. Sproul a lot, and he started reading Puritans and started going, oh, okay. So let me just um, uh, quickly, I'll try to say both. Classic dispensationalism, like Darby and Schofield, they clearly believed that in the Old Testament people were saved by law keeping. They were saved a different way than in the New Testament. Um, it was, the, and they, they talked about seven dispensations, and under each dispensation, they were saved a different way based on what they knew and understood. And under the dispensation of law, people were saved through law keeping. And it's not until you get to the New Testament, and this is what Schofield, Schofield, and Darby, and even Ryrie, and I know this because I read Ryrie's book on dispensationalism. Ryrie even argued that when Christ came, Christ came to be the king of Israel, to establish the nation of Israel as a great nation. They rejected him, because you got to remember, Ryrie was an Arminian, right? And so was Schofield and, and, and Darby. So in Ryrie's theology, they rejected the Messiah, um, and therefore God uses Jesus' death to bring salvation to the Gentiles. But that's a parenthesis. That's a parenthesis in redemptive history. 
The true people of God are ethnic Jews. God is working with Gentiles. And when he's done saving them, he's going to turn his attention back to the true people of God who are the ethnic descendants of Abraham. Can I ask right? a question? And that, and that they are saved. Um, at least Schofield and Darby would argue that they are saved simply by means of being ethnic descendants of Abraham because they are the Jews and they are the people of God. Yes. I was just going to say, you were talking about though that they were saved by the law-keeping, but wouldn't they have to be saved by law-keeping through the faith of what they've been told was going to come to fruition? No. Uh, Darby and Schofield, and even to a, a lesser degree, Ryrie would argue that they were saved by putting faith in the law that God had given them. That God says, if you do this, do these sacrifices, you'll be saved. And they were saved simply by believing and doing what God told them to do. Now you get to guys like um, MacArthur, and he's a little different. And, and, and you know, MacArthur has said, and I've heard him say this, he has said that you know salvation has always been by faith, right? In 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 the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it's always been uh, it's always been by faith. Um, Christ's death on the cross was not a shock to God, and he didn't go to a plan B because God knows everything. God always intended for Christ to die on the cross for the sins of all people that was foreordained from eternity past. So he's got his, his, his sovereignty of God theology right. Um, again, Cal- MacArthur's a Calvinist though, which, with, which helps. Um, but MacArthur would still believe, and, and MacArthur's more of a dispensationalist in terms of his, es- his eschatology, really. But MacArthur would still believe that... Um, that the, 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 the church doesn't begin until Pentecost. The church is different than what God was doing with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel are the true people of God, right? They are the true people of God. Um, and then there's the church. But nonetheless, both are going to get into heaven. And both get into heaven, he would say, by faith in Christ. Uh, I don't think McCarthy believes that uh, ethnic Jews are saved simply by means of being ethnic Jews. They, they have to put faith in the Messiah. He believes that the gospel has to be believed. Um, and so he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist. And so that's basically the difference. But see, I don't... I don't he's moving. He's moving, yes. I think, he, I think he's moving in the right direction. Um, but those would be, the, I think, the key differences. Yes? So do you have to be black and white with the three? Or is there a little bit of a mixture with both? I know how you were just saying leaky... Dispensationalist. I was just curious. Like, are there things that you? Well, there are definitely things. Well, sure, sure. There are things that overlap. Yeah, that's what I was asking. There are things that overlap. Um, but but you you can't you can't have like your foot in three different camps. No. Because um, I mean, because if you just if if I were to give it in one sentence, what's the difference between the three? The difference between the three is that uh, dispensationalists see that there are two people of God, and 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 the two shall not meet. There are two people of God, period, right? Covenant theologians would say there is one people of God, but all of the covenants build on top of each other, and we are still bound by all of the prior covenants and their signs. New covenant would say all of the covenants build on each other until the new covenant. And the new covenant is radically new, and it fulfills the prior covenant, namely the Mosaic Law, and therefore we are no longer bound by the Mosaic Law except uh, those things which Christ has not fulfilled 
by his life and death. Okay, that makes sense. Well, that's good stuff. <laughs> yes. Well, it seemed to me that one of the bigger things that uh, you brought up earlier is really that definition of church. And it, it seems that that might be something that people get kind of hung up on. And if you go back and look at Roman Catholicism, was actually right. you know founded supposedly like 80 years AD, something like that. Like yeah. it, it had been kicked around for a long time. And so I think that may be a historical influence of yeah. how church was defined. Yes. And especially because the Romans obviously brought us, the, or the Catholicism brought us our Bible. Yeah. So I'm sure there's some pull in there. But it does make sense in terms of lining up, you know, how you have the original Israelites and then the continuation of right. Abraham's descendants, which right. the evidence behind that, I would go back and look at the covenant with Abraham originally, is they will be more than the numbers of the stars. Yes. But you can't have that theoretically with just a single populace that's going to continue to grow. It will grow, but not to the extent of which would happen right. that, you know, Christianity can, because it can reach beyond families, it can reach beyond you know, race and things like that. Right. So it would right. seem to make sense. Yeah. yeah. And that's where you got to define your terms carefully because if you define church as the way in which we worship in the New Testament era, I would say, yeah, that begins at Pentecost. But if you define church as the ecclesia, as the people of God, well, then it's always been around from the very beginning. There's, there's always been one church. There's always been one people of God. There's always been one ecclesia from the beginning, they just looked different and worshipped differently throughout all of redemptive history. Um, so it kind of depends on how you define your terms. So how is it reconciled in the book of Hebrews when it talks about Abraham's faith saving him? How is that reconciled with people who are saying it has to be with lineage versus faith? Oh, like what would a, what would a dispensationalist? Uh, the next topic. What would a classic dispensationalist say I mean, to that? Say, yeah. what would be Are there the even any classic yeah. dispensationalists left? Yeah, I don't know. You know, they're a dying breed. <laughs> they, they really are. Generational. Yeah, they're they're kind of a dying breed. Most most dispensationalists today probably follow follow MacArthur's version of it. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's very few classics um, anymore. But yeah. I'm not sure how I'm not sure how Schofield would answer that question. Right. Um, but I'm just yeah. Right. You'd have to find one and ask him. Why don't we close in prayer then? Um, our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just uh, thank you for this opportunity to just um, to go through um, um, all of what you are doing in redemptive history, Lord God. And we stand amazed by your greatness, Lord, as we see your hand working uh, through every chapter of Scripture, through every uh, millennia, throughout world history, and we see how you are moving all of world history toward uh, your purpose. Uh, foreordained uh, conclusion, Lord God. And it brings us such comfort to know that you truly are in control of everything, Lord God. Everything that happens on a grand scale, everything that happens on a national level, everything that happens in our lives, we know is all a part of your plan. And somehow it all contributes to moving redemptive history forward, Lord God. And... Uh, we stand amazed by your um, 
your grace, your mercy, your love, your sovereignty, your power, your might. And we pray that these truths would move us to to worship you, Lord God, even more, to bow before your throne and recognize that you truly are the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, this is the old fun. Yeah, that was...